tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to part two of our two 99th birthday podcasts, which will feature the rest of the fantastic poetry readings you've sent in over the last month. As before, we open with losing our youth, losing our innocence and losing our hair in poems about everyday challenges, followed by an exploration of the disappointments and failures that even in their sadness can bring about great poetry compassion. We can look to literature or religion for solace, but sometimes there's no escape in the darker side of life. Thank you to our readers, Alex Howard, Adam Crawford, Philip Watts, Richard Johnston, Carmel Morgan, Robert Johnson, Tim Holmes and Roy Evans. Hello, I'm Alex Howard, author, academic and trustee of the Philip Larkin Society. So the Larkin poem I've chosen to read out for this podcast is Reasons for Attendance. And the simple reason for this is because I was a terrible teenager. The moment I hit those teenage years, it became abundantly obvious to me and everyone else that I was terrible at all the things teenagers were meant to be good at. And principal among these were dancing in crowded rooms filled with people. I, on the one hand, wanted to get involved and yet somehow couldn't. And I thought I was the only person in the world like this until I read Larkin's Reasons for Attendance. And ever since then, it's become a very cherished poem of mine. So here we go. Reasons for Attendance by Philip Larkin. The trumpet's voice, loud and authoritative, draws me a moment to the lighted glass to watch the dancers. All under 25. Shifting intently, face to flushed face, solemnly on the beat of happiness. Or so I fancy, sensing the smoke and sweat, the wonderful feel of girls. Why be out here? But then why be in there? Sex, yes, but what is sex? Surely to think the lion's share of happiness is found by couples? Sheer inaccuracy as far as I'm concerned. What calls me is that lifted, rough-tongued bell, art, if you like, whose individual sound insists I too am individual. It speaks, I hear. Others may hear as well, but not for me, nor I for them. And so with happiness. Therefore I stay outside believing this, and they maul to and fro believing that. And both are satisfied, if no one has misjudged himself or lied. My name is Adam Crawford, and I will be reading Continuing to Live. I'm afraid I don't really have any profound personal experiences that I can relate to this poem, but I think in getting older it gets easier to have more in common with the the sense of kind of bitter resignation that Larkin describes in it. Uh, At a certain point in life, you'll likely have to limit or give up things you're used to, or things you really enjoy, smoking or unhealthy food, stuff like that. And your interior life also might require moving around a lot of furniture just just for you to keep being consistently at peace with yourself. 
And of course, as Larkin often reminds, even if you achieve some ideal balance or become fully self-actualized or whatever, it's all ultimately kind of undermined by the fact that your life ends eventually. Um, it's definitely one of Larkin's bleaker poems, but still, it's wonderfully crafted, and it really hits home for me. Continuing to Live Continuing to live, that is, repeat a habit formed to get necessaries, is nearly always losing or going without. It varies, this loss of interest, hair, and enterprise. Ah, if the game were poker, yes, you might discard them, draw a full house. But it's chess. And once you have walked the length of your mind, what you command is clear as a lading list. Anything else must not for you be thought to exist. And what's the profit? Only that, in time, we half-identified the blind impress all our behavings bear may trace at home, but to confess, on that green evening when our death begins, just what it was is hardly satisfying, since it applied only to one man once, and that one dying. My name is Philip Watts. I'm a retired teacher, a heritage guide and writer. I've chosen to read reference back from the Whitson Weddings. The poem was written in 1955 and contains many characteristic Larkin themes, particularly relationships, in this case the one with his mother, time and music. The poem has been praised by Andrew Motion for its technical accomplishment. I'm particularly pleased that at a time when Larkin's reputation has been somewhat smirched by revelations of racism, it's heartening to read of his love for black jazz music, both in this poem and to recall his praise of it in his work as a jazz critic for The Telegraph. Reference back. That was a pretty one, I heard you call. From the unsatisfactory hall to the unsatisfactory room, where I played record after record idly, wasting my time at home, that you looked so much forward to. Oliver's Riverside Blues, it was. And now I shall, I suppose, always remember how the flock of notes those antique Negroes blew out of Chicago air into a huge remembering pre-electric horn the year after I was born, three decades later, made the sudden bridge from your unsatisfactory age to my unsatisfactory prime, truly. Though our element is time, we are not suited to the long perspectives open at each instant of our lives. They link us to our losses, worse. They show us what we have, as it once was, blindingly undiminished, just as though by acting differently, we could have kept it so. My name is Richard Johnston, and I'm a professor at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I know that it's perhaps most common to think of Sad Steps as a reimagining of Philip Sidney's 31st sonnet from Astrophil and Stella, uh, the sonnet that begins with how sad steps, O moon, thou climbst the skies. But I have found in teaching Larkin that it's often helpful to present the poem as a 
revisiting or reworking of the themes in Reasons for Attendance. Um, in Reasons, the strength, the love, the youth, the romance, the possibility, all of that was close to the speaker. It was, he could see it, he could hear it, he could imagine sensing it, smelling it, perhaps touching it. But in Sad Steps, it has been removed by a lifetime of choices um, and by age and uh, is now invisible and only barely imaginable. Sad steps. Groping back to bed after a piss, I part thick curtains, and I'm startled by the rapid clouds, the moon's cleanliness. Four o'clock. Wedge-shadowed gardens lie under a cavernous, a wind-picked sky. There's something laughable about this. The way the moon dashes through clouds that blow loosely as cannon smoke to stand apart, stone-colored light sharpening the roofs below, high and preposterous and separate, lozenge of love, medallion of art, oh, wolves of memory, immensements, no. One shivers slightly, looking up there. The hardness and the brightness and the plain, far-reaching singleness of that wide stare is a reminder of the strength and pain of being young, that it can't come again, but is for others undiminished somewhere. Thank you. Home is so sad. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so, having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music and the piano stool. That vase. My name is Robert Johnson. The poem I have chosen is Faith Healing. I chose it mainly because it's a beautiful poem. But I also like it because it seems to me a, a companion of sorts to an Arundel tomb, which famously concludes by seeking to prove our almost instinct, almost true. What will survive of us is love. Faith healing is a kind of negative restatement of the same principle. Here Larkin shows that a life lived absent love is one in which all's wrong. Faith healing by Philip Larkin. Slowly, the women file to where he stands, upright in rimless glasses, silver hair, dark suit, white collar. Stewards tirelessly persuade them onwards to his voice and hands, within whose warm spring rain of loving care 
Each dwells some twenty seconds. Now, dear child, what's wrong? The deep American voice demands. And, scarcely pausing, goes into a prayer, directing God about this eye, that knee. Their heads are clasped abruptly. Then, exiled like losing thoughts, they go in silence. Some sheepishly stray, not back into their lives just yet. But some stay stiff, twitching and loud, with deep, hoarse tears, as if a kind of dumb and idiot child within them still survives to reawake at kindness, thinking a voice at last calls them alone, that hands have come to lift and lighten. And such joy arrives, their thick tongues blort, their eyes squeeze grief, a crowd of huge unheard answers jam and rejoice. What's wrong? Mustached and flowered frocks they shake. By now all's wrong. In everyone there sleeps a sense of life lived according to love. To some it means the difference they could make by loving others. But across most it sweeps as all they might have done had they been loved. That nothing cures. An immense slackening ache as when thawing the rigid landscape weeps spread slowly through them that and the voice above saying dear child and all time has disproved hi my name's tim holmes i'm from aberystwyth i i chose this poem because i really enjoy the kind of music of it it sort of reminds me of a jazz lyric or something and uh i think it has a great punchline at the end that always makes me laugh. A study of reading habits. When getting my nose in a book cured most things short of school, it was worth ruining my eyes to know I could still keep cool and deal out the old right hook to dirty dogs twice my size. Later, with inch-thick specks, evil was just my lark. Me and my cloak and fangs had ripping times in the dark. The women I clubbed with sex, I broke them up like meringues. Don't read much now. The dude who lets the girl down before the hero arrives, the chap who's yellow and keeps the store, seem far too familiar. Get stewed. Books are a load of crap. Hi, my name's Roy Evans and I'm an English teacher. Um, I first came sort of upon a collection of Philip Larkin's poems in a library in the late 90s um, and was sort of immediately drawn to its subtext and felt a connection to Larkin's perspective on sort of suburban life and themes of alienation. Also just started listening to Radiohead, so um, it kind of went hand in hand. Um, Obard is a fantastic poem when you're younger um just thinking about um you know as you start to dabble in thoughts of uh, of of existence and so on but <laughs> when i decided i'd read this poem for this podcast um and rereading it i, I do find a little bit uh, more terrified at, it, at the actual poem as uh, as i read through it um it's a bit of a panic room um to me these days and um i suppose that's a testament to its brilliance so um here's uh, obard by philip larkin I work all day and get half drunk at night, 
Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time, the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's really always there. Unresting death, a whole day nearer now. Making all thought impossible, but how and where and when I shall myself die. Arid interrogation, yet the dread of dying and of being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse, the good not done, the love not given, time torn off unused, nor wretchedly because an only life can take so long to climb clear of its wrong beginnings and may never, but at the total emptiness forever the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid, no trick dispels. Religion used to try, that vast moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die and specious stuff that says no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel, not seeing that this is what we fear, no sight, no sound, no touch or taste or smell, nothing to think with, nothing to love or link with, the anaesthetic from which none come around. And so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small unfocused blur, a standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen. This one will. And realisation of it rages out in furnace fear when we are caught without people or drink. Courage is no good. It means not scaring others. Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different whined at than withstood. Slowly, light strengthens and the room takes shape. It stands plain as a wardrobe, what we know, have always known, known that we can't escape, yet can't accept. One side will have to go. Meanwhile, telephones crouch, getting ready to ring in locked-up offices and all the uncaring, intricate, rented world begins to rouse. The sky is white as clay, with no sun. Work has to be done. Postmen, like doctors, go from house to house. Michael Farman, in his commentary on The Old Fools, considers the way that Larkin moves from repulsion to sympathy in this poem. And this is why I felt it should go in the selection that dealt with love and compassion. Racehorses, hedgehogs, the young and old, Larkin looks upon the people around him and considers the connections between us. We then move on to poems about learning and experience, those family holidays, those lost girlfriends, our distant university days, Memories that are getting a bit faded around the edges. All rich topics for Larkin. Nothing like something happens anywhere, as Larkin says. Thank you to Sue Mendes, Maureen Doherty, Rich Turner, Michael Farman, Julian Wilde, Martin Lowcock, Nigel McBride, Wes Finch and Jim Maliski.
My name's Sue Mendes, and I'm a retired academic from the University of York. I've chosen to read An April Sunday Brings the Snow. And I've chosen this because I love to make jam, and the poem gives a very poignant expression to the optimism of jam making. We make our jam in the summer, and we lay it down, knowing that it will bring us comfort on harsh winter days. But here, in this poem, the jam maker does not live to use the jam. She has faith in a future which she will not live to see. An April Sunday brings the snow. An April Sunday brings the snow, making the blossom on the plum trees green, not white. An hour or two and it will go. Strange that I spend that hour moving between cupboard and cupboard, shifting the store of jam you made, fruit, from those same trees. Five loads, a hundred pounds or more. More than enough for all next summer's teas, which now you will not sit and eat. Behind the glass, under the cellophane, remains your final summer, sweet and meaningless, and not to come again. My name is Maureen Doherty, and the poem... I have chosen is the mower. I love hedgehogs. I get that from my mother, who sadly has departed this earth. She was a very kind soul. And this poem reminds me of her and reminds me that time is short and that kindness is the way. The mower. The mower stalled. Twice. Kneeling, I found a hedgehog jammed up against the blades, killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before and even fed it once. Now I had mauled its unobtrusive world, unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning, I got up and it did not the first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. This is Places, Loved Ones by Philip Larkin, read by Rich Turner of Winchester. No, I have never found the place where I could say, This is my proper ground, here I shall stay. Nor met that special one who has an instant claim on everything I own, down to my name. To find such seems to prove you want no choice in where to build or whom to love. You ask them to bear you off irrevocably, so that it's not your fault. Should the town turn dreary, the girl adult. Yet, 
Having missed them, you're bound, nonetheless, to act, as if what you settled for mashed you, in fact, and wiser to keep away from thinking you still might trace, uncalled for to this day, your person, your place. Hello, my name's Michael Farman. I'd like to read The Old Falls. I live in Beverly, not far from the Beverly Arms Hotel, where, where Larkin used to sometimes take Maeve Brennan for afternoon tea. As an octogenarian, I have a particular interest in this poem. I think it's Larkin in top form. I admire the way he progresses through the four stanzas, um, moving gradually from repulsion to something for him almost like sympathy. Uh, and then there's a realization in the final line. The Old Fools. What do they think has happened, the old fools, to make them like this? Do they somehow suppose it's more grown up when your mouth hangs open and drools and you keep on pissing yourself and can't remember who called this morning? Or that, if they only chose, they could alter things back to where they danced all night or went to their wedding or sloped arms some September? Or do they fancy there's really been no change? And they've always behaved as if they were crippled or tight or sat through days of thin, continuous dreaming, watching the light move. If they don't, and they can't, it's strange. Why aren't they screaming? At death, you break up. The bits that were you start speeding away from each other, forever with no one to see. It's only oblivion, true. We had it before, but then it was going to end and was all the time merging with a unique endeavour to bring to bloom the million-petal flower of being here. Next time, you can't pretend there'll be anything else. And these are the first signs. Not knowing how, not hearing who, the power of choosing gone. Their looks show that they're for it. Ash hair, toad hands, prune face dried into lines. How can they ignore it? Perhaps being old is having lighted rooms inside your head and people in them acting people you know yet can't quite name. Each looms like a deep loss restored from known doors turning, setting down a lamp, smiling from a stair, extracting a known book from the shelves or sometimes only the rooms themselves, chairs and a fire burning, the blown bush at the window or the sun's faint friendliness on the wall some lonely rain-seized midsummer evening. That is where they live, not here and now, but where all happened once. This is why they give an air of baffled absence, trying to be there, yet being here. For the rooms grow farther, leaving incompetent cold, the constant wear and tear of taken breath, and then, crouching below extinction alp, the old fools, never perceiving how near it is, this must be what keeps them quiet. The peak that stays in view wherever we go, for them is rising ground. Can they never tell what is dragging them back and how it will end? Not at night, not when the strangers come, never throughout the whole hideous inverted childhood. Well, we shall find out. At Grass by Philip Larkin, 3rd of January, 1950. The eye can hardly pick them out from the cold shade they shelter in till wind distresses tail and mane. Then one crops grass and moves about, 
the other seeming to look on and stands anonymous again. Yet 15 years ago, perhaps two dozen distances sufficed to fable them. Faint afternoons of cups and stakes and handicaps, whereby their names were artificed to inlay faded classic dunes. Silks at the start, against the sky numbers and parasols, outside squadrons of empty cars and heat and littered grass. Then the long cry hanging unhushed till it subside, to stop press columns on the street. Do memories plague their ears like flies? They shake their heads, dusk brims the shadows. Summer by summer all stole away, the starting gates, the crowds and cries, all but the unmolesting meadows. Almanac, their names live. They have slipped their names and stand at ease, or gallop for what must be joy, and not a field glass sees them home, or curious stopwatch prophesies. Only the groom and the groom's boy with bridles in the evening come. Hello, I'm Clarissa Hart, and I'm a second year PhD student at the University of Cambridge. Today, I'm going to read Long Sight in Age, one of Larkin's more life-affirming depictions of growing older. Larkin is certainly better known for his more harrowing portrayals of the aging process, such as The Old Fools or Heads in the Women's Ward. But in this poem, we find a sense of recollection and tranquility, looking back on things in one's life and making sense of them in the fullness of time. They say eyes clear with age, as dew clarifies air to sharpen evenings, as if time put an edge round the last shape of things to show them there. The many level trees, the long, soft tides of grass, wrinkling away the gold wind-ridden waves. All these, they say, come back to focus as we grow old. I'm uh, Martin Logoth, I'm a poet and writer. And I've uh, liked Larkin for most of my life, I suppose. What I always liked about him is his ability to boil down exactly what a point of view is into a, a few precise words. And I've chosen uh, this poem, I Have Started to Say, because uh, it's I've caught up with him in terms of age. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have indeed started to say a quarter of a century, <laughs> um, as the poem says. And one of the interesting things, I think, is that it's, uh, although it's, it's broadly speaking um, pessimistic. There is a, an element at the end of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, renewal uh, involved. So I have started to say, I have started to say a quarter of a century or 30 years back about my own life. It makes me breathless. It's like falling and recovering in huge gesturing loops through an empty sky. All that's left to happen is some deaths, my own included. Their order and their manner remain to be learnt. My name is Nigel McBride, and I'd like to read I Remember, I Remember, because the poem intrigues me. I can't decide whether it reflects Larkin's feelings about a childhood he really felt rather boring and uneventful 
or whether it is just using it to project the rather melancholy persona he liked to present to the outside world. Or maybe it is just a dig at other writers who romanticise their childhoods for literary effect. Perhaps a bit of all three. I remember. I remember. Coming up England by a different line for once, early in the cold new year we stopped, and watching men with number plates sprint down the platform to familiar gates. Why, Coventry, I exclaimed. I was born here. I leant far out and squinted for a sign that this was still the town that had been mine so long, but found I wasn't even clear which side was which. From where those cycle crates were standing, had we annually departed for all those family halls? A whistle went. Things moved. I sat back, staring at my boots. What's that, my friend smiled, where you have your roots? No, only where my childhood was unspent, I wanted to retort. Just where I started. By now, I've got the whole place clearly chartered. Our garden first, where I did not invent blinding theologies of flowers and fruits, and wasn't spoken to by an old hat. And here we have that splendid family I never ran to when I got depressed. The boys all biceps and the girls all chest, their comet Ford, their farmer I could be, really myself. I'll show you, come to that, the bracken where I never trembling sat, determined to go through with it, where she lay back and all became a burning mist. And in those offices, my doggerel was not set up in blunt ten points, nor read by a distinguished cousin of the mayor, who didn't call and tell my father, there before us had we the gift to see ahead. You look as if you wished the place in hell, my friend said, judging from your face. Oh, well, I suppose it's not the place's fault, I said. Nothing like something happens anywhere. Wild Oats About 20 years ago, two girls came in where I worked. A bosomy English rose and her friend in specs I could talk to. Faces in those days sparked the whole shooting match off, and I doubt if ever one had like hers. But it was the friend I took out. And in seven years after that, wrote over 400 letters, gave a 10 guinea ring I got back in the end, and met at numerous cathedral cities unknown to the clergy. I believe I met Beautiful twice. She was trying both times, so I thought, not to laugh. Parting, after about five rehearsals, was an agreement that I was too selfish, withdrawn and easily bored to love. Well, useful to get that learnt. In my wallet, there are still two snaps of Buzzmy Rose with fur gloves on. Unlucky charms, perhaps. (laughs) 
I'm Jim Maliski, and I selected Dockery and Son. Now, I chose this poem because it demonstrates two things I really love about Larkin's poetry. First, he has a way of transporting me to a place with very little descriptive language. You know, the poem is like a movie that takes me from those dazzling lawns of Oxford to those furnace glares of Sheffield. I can almost taste that awful pie and, and feel myself balancing on the train platform while I'm eating it. Second, he transports me also into someone else's mind. Now, I personally believe there's more to life than boredom and fear. But again, in only a few words, he gives me the point of view of someone who believes just that. Dockery and Son by Philip Larkin Dockery was junior to you, wasn't he? said the dean. His son's here now. Death-suited visitant, I nod. And do you keep in touch with... Or remember how black-gowned, unbreakfasted, and still half-tight we used to stand before that desk to give our version of these incidents last night? I try the door of where I used to live, locked. The lawn spreads dazzlingly wide. A known bell chimes. I catch my train, ignored. Canal and clouds and colleges subside slowly from view. But Dockery, good lord! Anyone up today must have been born in 43, when I was 21. If he was younger, did he get the son at 19, 20? Was he that withdrawn, high-collared public schoolboy sharing rooms with Cartwright, who was killed? Well, it just shows how much, how little. Yawning, I suppose I fell asleep, waking at the fumes and furnace glares of Sheffield, where I changed and ate an awful pie and walked along the platform to its end to see the ranged joining and parting lines reflect a strong, unhindered moon. To have no son, no wife, no house or land still seemed quite natural. Only a numbness registered the shock of finding out how much had gone of life, how widely from the others. Dockery, now, only 19, he must have taken stock of what he wanted and been capable of. No, that's not the difference. Rather, how convinced he was he should be added to. Why did he think adding meant increase? To me, it was dilution. Where do these innate assumptions come from? Not from what we think truest or most want to do. Those warp tight shut like doors. They're more a style our lives bring with them. Habit for a while. Suddenly they harden into all we've got, and how we got it? Look back on they rear like sand clouds, thick and close, embodying for Dockery a son, for me nothing, nothing with all a son's harsh patronage. Life is first boredom, then fear. Whether or not we use it, it goes, and leaves what something hidden from us chose, and age, and then the only end of age. We come to a close with poems of celebration, the places, people and times that lifted Larkin's heart, even just for a moment, including, of course, the podcast signature poem, Broadcast. Thank you so much to Daniel Gallimore, Philip Watts, Tony DeCock, Rosie Millard, Chris Suett and Charlie Connolly. Hello, my name is Daniel Gallimore and I've been a member of the Philip Larkin Society since 2004. I'm going to read Philip Larkin's poem To the Sea, which is a poem that takes me back to seaside holidays in North Devon in the 1970s, specifically to Putsborough Beach near Biddeford, when everything was just as the poet describes, 
including the ship stuck in the afternoon that had gone by the time we made our own trek back to the car. And as well as being a vividly observed poem, it's also one of those poems with all the vowels. You can really feel the poet breathing in the fresh sea air. So I'd like to read it in memory of my father, John, who passed away earlier this year and loved the seaside. To step over the low wall that divides road from concrete walk above the shore brings sharply back something known long before, the miniature gaiety of seasides. Everything crowds under the low horizon, steep beach, blue water, towels, red bathing caps, the small hushed waves repeated fresh collapse up the warm yellow sand, and further off, a white steamer stuck in the afternoon. Still going on, all of it, still going on, to lie, eat, sleep in hearing of the surf, ears to transistors, that sound tame enough under the sky, or gently up and down leads the uncertain children, frilled in white and grasping at enormous air, or wheel the rigid old along for them to feel a final summer, plainly still occurs as half an annual pleasure, half a right. As when, happy at being on my own, I searched the sand for famous cricketers. Or farther back, my parents, listeners to the same seaside quack, first became known. Strange to it now, I watched the cloudless scene, the same clear water over smoothed pebbles, the distant bathers' weak protesting troubles down at its edge, and then the cheap cigars, the chocolate papers, tea leaves, and between the rocks, the rusting soup tins till the first few families start the trek back to the cars. The white steamer has gone. Like breathed on glass, the sunlight has turned milky. If the worst of flawless weather is our falling short, it may be that through habits these do best, coming to the water clumsily undressed yearly, teaching their children by a sort of clowning, helping the old two as they ought. My name is Philip Watts. I'm a huge fan of Larkin. I've taught him and I write poetry and I would include him certainly as one of my mentor voices. I've chosen the trees because at a time particularly when we're becoming increasingly sensitive to the more negative aspects of Larkin and his life, it's a reminder of his extraordinary sense of the beauty of nature and the gentle lyricism of much of his verse. Like Hardy, another of my mentors and his great idol, he captures the endless cycle of renewal that is spring with extraordinary delicacy and optimism. The trees. The trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. I'm Tony to Cook. I'd like to read High Windows. Uh, High Windows 
Strange poem. Not really quite sure what's going on. Seems to start out being one poem and ends up being another. It's the turn when it comes just comes out of the blue. It's um, talking about looking at these kids and then wondering about his own kind of what people thought about him when he was that age. And then out of the blue comes this, uh, this sort of high windows. And the sun comprehending glass. The sun comprehending glass. It seems to me to be a moment of solipsistic realisation that he's kind of understands that this glass belongs to the universe, that there is nothing beyond this glass that he understands, and that actually any, everything that he knows is on his side of the glass. Everything on the other side of the glass is completely unknowable and absolutely scary. So, high windows. When I see a couple of kids, and I guess he's fucking her, and she's taking pills or wearing a diaphragm, I know this is paradise. Everyone old has dreamed of all their lives. Bonds and gestures pushed to one side like an outdated combine harvester, and everyone young going down the long slide to happiness, endlessly. I wonder if anyone looked at me 40 years back and thought, that'll be the life, no God anymore, or sweating in the dark about hell and that, or having to hide what you think of the priest. He and his lots will all go down the long slide like free bloody birds. And immediately, rather than words, comes the thought of high windows the sun-comprehending glass, and beyond it, the deep blue air that shows nothing, and is nowhere, and is endless. Hi, it's Rosie Millard here, and I have chosen to read Here, which is the first poem in the Wits and Weddings anthology. Um... My copy of The Wits and Weddings is a first edition and first impression. Um, it was published in 1964, and this book was given to me by my partner, Alex Graham. And um, he read me this poem while I was ill in hospital because he knew how much I loved it. Um, I got better, by the way. <laughs> um, and this poem really helped me because it reminded me so much of Hull, um, which I love. This, I think, is, is Larkin's testament to Hull. And what he does is place it within its environment in the East Riding. And that, for me, is, is what is so wonderful about this poem. It's not just about the city. It's about its position in the country. And that's what's so powerful. Here. Swerving east from rich industrial shadows and traffic all night north, swerving through fields too thin and thistled to be called meadows, and now and then a harsh-named halt that shields workmen at dawn, swerving to solitude of skies and scarecrows, Haystacks, hares and pheasants, and the widening river's slow presence, 
the piled gold clouds, the shining gull-marked mud, gathers to the surprise of a large town. Here domes and statues, spires and cranes cluster beside grain-scattered streets, barge-crowded water, and residents from raw estates brought down the dead straight miles by stealing flat-faced trolleys, push through plate-glass swing doors to their desires, cheap suits, red kitchenware, sharp shoes, iced lollies, electric mixers, toasters, washers, dryers. A cut-price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come, with an terminate and fishy-smelling pastoral of ships-up streets, the slave museum, tattoo shops, consulates, grim head-scarved wives, and out beyond its mortgaged half-built edges, fast-shadowed wheat fields running high as hedges, isolate villages where removed lives. Loneliness clarifies. Here silence stands like heat. Here leaves unnoticed thicken, hidden weeds flower, neglected waters quicken, luminously peopled air ascends, and past the poppy's bluish neutral distance ends the land, suddenly, beyond a beach of shapes and shingle. Here is unfenced existence, facing the sun, untalkative. Out of reach. Hi, I'm Chris Sir, and I've chosen the very short poem 1952 to 1977. I didn't know until selecting the poem that it was written for the Queen's Silver Jubilee, but what particularly attracts me to it is the last line, and I wonder if Larkin's many relationships are encapsulated in it. 1952 to 1977. In times when nothing stood, but worsened or grew strange, there was one constant good. She did not change. My name's Charlie Connolly, and I've chosen broadcast from the Whitson Weddings. I think it's a wonderful evocation of listening, and listening to the radio, and the intimacy of listening to the radio, as well as being a wonderful portrait of love and yearning at a distance. Broadcast Giant whispering and coughing From vast, Sunday-full and organ-frowned-on spaces Proceed a sudden scuttle on the drum The Queen and huge resettling Then begins a snivel on the violins I think of your face Among all those faces, beautiful and devout Before cascades of monumental slithering one of your gloves unnoticed on the floor beside those new, slightly outmoded shoes. Here it goes quickly dark. I lose all but the outline of the still and withering leaves on half-emptied trees. Behind the glowing wave-bands, rabid storms of cording, by being distant, overpower my mind all the more shamelessly, their cut-off shout leaving me desperate to pick out your hands. Tiny, in all that air, Applauding. I've really enjoyed putting together these two episodes of Poetry Readings. 
I've been amazed at the variety of poems selected and the many different reasons that people have selected their poems. It says so much about what Larkin's poetry means to so many of us. If you have been inspired to make a recording of yourself reading a Larkin poem, then please do. I'd love to feature more readings in future podcasts and on the Twitter page. You can also submit short readings of poems to our Instagram account. If you'd like any technical support, then just drop me a line. I'm taking a break in September, but I will be back in October with our Horror Larkin podcast, where we explore the dark and spooky side of Larkin's writing in the Halloween month. Please watch out for the exclusive and collectible Philip Larkin Society 2022 centenary calendar that will be available for sale via our website shop very soon, featuring some never-before-published photographs of Philip Larkin. And also, coming up for sale, our first Philip Larkin Society tea towel. Your Christmas present shopping list will be so easy this year. This podcast is produced by Mr Simon Galloway, and the music is The Horns of the Morning by the Mechanicals Band. Thank you for all your support. And as ever, if you have any questions or suggestions, please get in touch. I will leave you with a final reading of The Mower, which is one of Larkin's most loved poems. Thank you to Belinda Gary for sending this to us. I chose this poem as it resonated with me, and within it there is both grief and regret. We and other beings are on this planet for a short while, and we always think we have infinite time. We all need to be mindful each day of our actions. The mower. The mower stalled twice. Kneeling, I found a head jug jammed up against the blades, killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before and even fed it once. Now I had mauled its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning I got up and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time.